Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean Basin. I'm joined today with Dr. John Edwards for a conversation about the inception of the Habsburg family ruling, and using modern-day terminology, the inception of the Habsburg family ruling Spain. The Habsburg family is believed to have originated in a small region of Germany. So this conversation today is largely about how the Habsburg family from Germany originally ended up ruling Spain in the early modern period. Dr. Edwards is Senior Research Fellow in Spanish at the University of Oxford in the UK. His area of research is the history and culture of Spain in the 15th and 16th centuries with particular emphasis on religion in the European context. And he's the author of the book, The Spain of the Catholic Monarchs, 1474 to 1520, which was published by Wiley Blackwell. Welcome to the call, John. Thank you. So before we get into sort of the apex of the conversation around the Habsburg family beginning to rule Spain as it was at that given time in history, can you share a background on the Habs, Habsburg family more generally prior to the to their reign in Spain? Sure. Um, if we look, the Habsburg um, family were very, very minor German princes in the, the medieval period, but the family had this incredible gift of expanding their territory and their wealth and their influence by means of careful and clever marriages. Um, so they start off in the Rhineland and in, in Germany. And then they um, gradually acquire lands, first of all, Austria, and then by marriage, they take over a large part of the Netherlands, that is modern Netherlands and Belgium. And um, so their connection with Spain comes actually mainly through the Netherlands. And, it, and it's through marriages, which we will talk about, mm. involving the Catholic King and Queen of Spain, um, Ferdinand, Fernando and Isabella, Isabel. Okay. And what was... Okay, so there's a Habsburg family. They start as minor princes, princesses yep. of the Germ German area, and then they gradually accumulate more power over time. Before we get into the um, dynastic, you know, uh, dynamism um, in Spain, what was the socio-economic dy dynamic in uh, Spain at that time, perhaps from a, um, a sovereignty perspective, uh, imperialism, re religion, it's kind of a broad question, but what was the, before they're there, what was Spain like? The countries, um, I suppose you would say a second size power in um, late medieval Europe, um, that is, you know, a lot less populous and a lot less uh, powerful than France, for example, which was the superpower really of, of late medieval Europe. Um, but the, um, the great strengths of Spain were its um, 
mineral resources and its um, agricultural activity, and to some extent, industry. By industry, I mean mainly um, textiles, although they also, um, through the mineral resources, um, were able to produce a lot of the metal. So on the whole, it was a country of raw materials rather than finished manufacturers. And what was it like religiously? What was the environment at that time? Well, Spain, unlike almost everywhere else in Europe, hadn't been entirely Christian during the previous several hundred years. In fact, 711, um, the first uh, Muslim invasion took place in um, southwest Spain, in Gibraltar and around there. Um, and so for over 300 years, the great bulk of Spain, almost up to the Pyrenees, was run by Muslim powers. Um, also, to add to the complications, of course, already when the Muslims invaded Spain um, in 711, there was a well-established Jewish community, which had probably been there, um, well, since the Roman rule, which had going back to the beginning of the common era of, of the Christian era. Um, so um, what had happened by, if we sort of take it about 1450, I think that's a helpful place to start when we're dealing with what happens under the Habsburgs. Um, by then, um, there was only one small part of um, Spain that was still under Muslim rule, and that was the kingdom or emirate of Granada. Um, the rest of the country was divided into several Christian kingdoms. Now, including that, Portugal, which was already separate, um, Castile, which was much the biggest and had the biggest population and the most military power, mm -hmm. um, the crown of Aragon, which contained Aragon itself, Aragon, and also um, Catalonia, Valencia, and the Balearic Islands in the Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. um, and then before you get to France and into the over the Pyrenees, the Kingdom of Navarre. So it was a federation, as it were, except they weren't, they were formally separate um, until um, Ferdinand of Aragon marries Isabel of Castile in 1469. And that's when an attempt at unification of Spain begins. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so you have, um, that's purely a dynastic union. In other words, it's the marriage only. The, those countries, the crown of Castile, the crown of Aragon, and all their territories still keep their own laws, their own system of government and all the rest of it. But of course, as the king and queen are married, um, they begin to work together. And so um, as a result of that, they are able to conquer the last Muslim bit, the Emirate of, of Granada, which they do um, finally in 1492. And after that, mm -hmm. foreigners in Europe tend to begin to talk about Spain as though it were one place. Um, although legally it still wasn't for a long time after that. Um, and so they talk about the King of Spain or the Queen of Spain. And it's that setup that the Habsburgs inherit. And when, uh, so to the point of um, Spain as we, we, we know it is, now a 
country. At one point, it was many different parts. Um, Castilian, for for instance, um, is synonymous with modern day Spanish. Is it not as a language? It's the one that's spoken by most people. Um, although, of course, if you're in Catalonia, they will contest that being being a language. Mm-hmm. This yeah. is dominant, um, that they're trying to get it out. But current stuff. What is interesting is that um, Castilian is what we normally call Spanish mm-hmm. around the world. It's what everybody does. And of course, in, particularly interestingly, it is Castilian Spanish, which is spoken in Latin America. And also in other places that the Spanish colonized in the 16th century, for example, the Philippines. Um, you know, they they taught Spanish equals um, <laughs> Castilian. Yes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. So, Isabella of Castile. There's a, there's there's a dynastic union here. So there's Isabella of Castile, marries Ferdinand the second of Aragon, and but the Habsburg family. It sounds like at this point in time is somewhere in the germanic area of yeah. europe right yeah. um in the netherlands yes, that's, that's, that's correct at that at that time they um Habsburgs have um overall control of what is modern belgium and the netherlands called the netherlands all of it the low countries mm-hmm. then um and also of course austria various territories in central europe um how does this get connected is through another dynastic mm-hmm. move okay what happens well um isabella and ferdinand pursue uh, as soon as they get control in in spain which they do in the 1470s as soon as they've done that they um start a marriage policy um for their children with the intention of alliances with all the countries surrounding France. The idea is to contain the superpower France, as it were, use the modern word. And um, as a result of that, their daughter Juana, Joanna, is sent off to marry um, Philip of Habsburg, who is at that time called Archduke of Austria, but actually functions as the um, son and heir in the Netherlands. And so she goes there in 1496, and for the next, I mean, she comes back to Spain in 1502 with him, but um, the next 10 years, they um, are mostly in the Netherlands. But that's what makes the connection. It, it's, it's, um, it's the marriage policy of Ferdinand and Isabella, which actually makes the... Um, the link that leads to the Habsburgs taking over in Spain. You mentioned some competing factions to that area of modern day Spain, such as France in the Northeast. So there's emperors and rulers over time that sometimes uh, take a very progressive and aggressive stance on um, ruling in terms of wanting to claim more land and more wealth that comes from that, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then there's other times where there's more of a 
def defensive or solitary type of um, approach to, to governance that, that occurs. How would you describe what the psychology or the psyche was of this monarchy at this point in time with all these you know, varying factions and considerations at play? Well, that's a big question, of course. Um, in, um, I think what I'd start with is by saying that when Isabella became Queen of Castile um, at the end of 1474, um, her title to the throne was a bit dubious. There was a rival candidate mm. who was actually supported by the Portuguese. And in fact, um, the other candidate, Juana, another Juana, mm. Joanna, um, who was also um, offspring of the previous Castilian king, Henry IV, had ma married by this time the Portuguese king, Alfonso V. And there was, in fact, a war. So the first psychological thing, if you ask about, you know, securing your own state, that was the number one on the agenda. Um, and that took them almost until 1480. Um, there were, you know, w there was warfare in which Castile, where most of the fighting took place, wasn't a lot of fighting, but there was some, it was mostly politics, but they, um, Castilian aristocracies and leading churchmen split into two sides. Mm. It, it was effectively a, a sort of civil war, only with a Portuguese invasion as well. So agenda one item was, you know, simply to secure the throne. 1479, the Castilian war is more or less over and Isabella and Ferdinand have won. In that same year, Ferdinand inherits the crown of Aragon from his father, John II. Um, and this means they can then start more thoroughly on the next item of the agenda, which is as what I've sometimes called a conservative revolution. It means um, establishing firm government, both sides of that border, and um, but using traditional institutions. The third item is about religion. It's, it's about Christianity. Um, they are, of course, Christian rulers, Catholic rulers. Um, later, in 1496, the then Pope, Alexander VI, will actually call them officially Catholic monarchs, Reyes Catolicos, um, for their services. Um, but the, um, the agenda at that point begins to be, as a first of all, consolidation of their existing territories, and then the next item on the agenda is to get rid of a Muslim political presence from the Iberian Peninsula. Um, that happens after 1481. And there's about 10 years warfare between 1482 and 92, um, in which gradually, by a massive war effort in which large parts of the peninsula are involved one way or another, the materials or men or money, um, they succeed in ending Muslim rule um, in the Iberian Peninsula. Kingdom of Granada is joined with the Crown of Castile. And that's... Um, so that's um, their next item on the agenda. Now, fourth item mm -hmm. is the question of foreign policy. 
in other words, with dealing dealing with other um, countries around. Mm -hmm. Obviously, they had to sort out their relationship with their neighbours, Portugal, after this, the war, 1475 to, set, to nine. Mm -hmm. And then they, um, of course, have to deal, as you mentioned, with, with France, um, which was always looming as, as the most powerful uh, nation um, in Europe, the biggest population, the greatest wealth, military power, etc. Um, the reason Germany, by the way, is not in this is because, although of course it was huge, it was very divided politically mm -hmm. into lots of different states and so on, whereas France had a fairly centralised monarchy and therefore was operating more effectively in that way um and so for the rest of the reign there are various things that happen when they um there is still the question on religion within spain of assimilating the non-christians those who of these jewish and islamic traditions um i said the political military side was dealt with in 1492 but um there were also tensions within the church, um, a lot of them caused by the fact that thousands and thousands of people who had formerly been Jews or Muslims were, they hoped, going to become Catholic Christians and, and, and come into the thing. But clearly they didn't suddenly lose all the traditions they'd had before. Um, so within Spain, you get... Um, strengthening of government institutions and the um, Inquisition, which is something we must talk about, um, which was the Catholic Church's attempt to find out who was Orthodox and who wasn't within the country as Catholics, and um, sometimes to punish and to convert um, the people who um, were still adhering to the old their old religions, either Jewish or, or Muslim. Um, and then, of course, so that leads Spain to look abroad in the sense that they realise that their hold in the Kingdom of Granada and also up the east coast of Spain in, in the Levante, in um, Valencia and so on, is not very secure because of Muslim powers um, either um, across the Mediterranean, North Africa, or else in um, the Eastern Mediterranean, where the Ottoman Turks, who had um, established themselves for the conquest of Byzantium on the, on the European continent, um, were a constant threat. They were in an expansionist phase, and the fear was always in Spain, given its history, that um, the Muslims would return. And that goes on all through the 16th century as a problem. Um, and then on top of that, of course, all Catholic powers had to deal with Rome and Italy as being the center of the church mm. and so on. Um, they have territorial interests in Italy, um, particularly the Duchy of Milan, the Kingdom of Naples and the island of Sicily. And so attention has to be paid to that. So. Those are about four or five items of agenda, and they were all pursued um, mm -hmm. from about, particularly from about 1479 onwards. So at that point in time, with the dynastic union between Isabella of Castile and Ferdinand II of Aragon, they had clearly power, but not so much power that they had the liberty to be 
extremely ambitious, but it sounds like it was in a lot of ways tactical, but also one of maintaining what they had now. Is that fair to say? I think that's absolutely right. Um, It is, I said earlier, it's a conservative revolution in the sense they were trying to hold on to what they've got Mm -hmm. and strengthen the, the use of existing institutions. But you see, nobody should think of Spain or any other early modern state as being like a, I don't know, a 20th or 21st century totalitarian state. They weren't, although they had a lot of the features of those things. I mean, to put it simply, um, early modern states just weren't that efficient. Um, they didn't have the, the sort of effective police forces and so on that were going on. The rough way I would put it is um, early modern states, i.e. like Habsburg Spain, they could be extremely heavy and extremely nasty, but only for a short time and in limited circumstances, i.e. in a particular place, it would come down, as we say in England, like a ton of bricks mm-hmm. on you and snuff out some particular um, dissidents that they wanted to deal with, mm-hmm. but they couldn't provide the coverage 24-7 <laughs> to do that kind of thing. And so they they have great ambitions, but the practical ability is slightly limited, as you say. How does Kuahana, uh, Joanna of Castile, end up marrying Philip the first of, uh, who becomes Philip the first of um, Castile, who at the time... I believe you said was our Duke of Austria and was positioned predominantly in the Netherlands. How did how did that union come to be? Well, it's part of this um, encircling France strategy that um, there was a series of marriages. You see that the um, it was a double marriage with the Netherlands that the son who died, Prince Juan, Prince John. Um, who died very young in 1497, um, who was supposed to be the heir, um, I think, to both thrones, uh, Castile and Aragon, um, was married to Margaret of Austria, who uh, was a sister. And therefore, um, there was going to be a double marriage. Why the Netherlands? Two reasons. One that, um, I say, the, the containment of France, but the other is they were very strong historical links um, and economic links and cultural links, including art and music, between the Netherlands and uh, Spain, which went back for centuries. So in that sense, it was quite natural. The Netherlands sort of looked in two directions as far as abroad was concerned, i.e. not into Germany, um, in the late Middle Ages. And one way was to England and the other was to Spain. And of course, one must remember that alongside the marriage of uh, Juana to um, Philip of Habsburg, there was the marriage um, of Catherine, um, the younger sister, her younger sister, uh, first of all to Prince Arthur, and then when he died to Henry VIII of England. So that's all part of one strategy. but um, the great attraction of um, a marriage with Habsburgs was 
it, the Netherlands was probably, apart from Italy, the most prosperous place in Europe at this stage. Immensely urbanized, highly commercialized, um, very maritime, of course, because of the coast of, of what is modern Belgium and, and, and the Netherlands. And um, also, of course, it was a link with, they hoped, with the Holy Roman Empire, which was dominating Central Europe. Uh, the, the Burgundians, who had been running Spain, were under um, Habsburg rule for some time, you know, just a couple of decades, really, when this all happened. Well, I should also bear in mind that um, I think that all this was very sort of new and provisional in a sense. You know, Ferdinand and Isabella, I think, were not too sure of their place in Europe when all this started out. They wanted friends wherever they could get them. And... Um, links with the Germany and the Empire and the Netherlands was a jolly good idea. Um, and the links with Tudor England actually came into the same policy, really. Friendship with Portugal and then links with the Northern powers was was what they were looking for. Um, so really, I mean, it was acceptable, of course, in all over Europe in that period, that these royal marriages were mostly political or economic or both. Mm -hmm. um, and this is no exception. And shortly thereafter, somewhat shortly thereafter, there is a Holy Roman Emperor who is also the King of Castile and Aragon. So how did, how did that, that occur? Well, at this point, I have to magic in about five minutes an incredibly complicated piece mm -hmm. of history. Mm -hmm. um, I started, I've just been talking about the great dynastic strategy that Ferdinand and Isabella had. They were not lucky. Um, a lot of things didn't work out. I said that the first blow was when Prince Juan died. Margaret of Austria left Spain. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, the intention was never when these marriages were arranged, that the Habsburgs should rule Spain. It only came about because of family catastrophes, really. Um, and the Habsburgs had a great gift of taking advantage of such things. Um, so um, we have a situation. Uh, one, I mean, one of the, it's ironic, really, that one of the problems of the um, Trastamarans, the family that Ferdinand and Isabella belonged to, there were two branches of the same family, um, was on the whole had problems in reproducing, producing heirs. Um, and of course, this ultimately would lead to the um, Hen Henry VIII's reformation in England because of the failure of Catherine to produce a son. Um, but that's later. Juana, on the other hand, was a mother of numerous children doesn't seem to have had any problem in, in that area mm -hmm. and, uh, and so um, she had um, a series of, I say, of children starting with Charles 1500 this is where we get into the Habsburgs and Spain uh, born in 1500 in Ghent in the Netherlands and um, of course what was supposed to happen was that when Isabella died in November 1504, um, that by that time, um, Juana was the successor. Mm -hmm. 
but that's because of deaths of other children, which is too complicated to go into. Mm. But in the in Ferdinand Isabella's family, yeah. um, the idea was, of course, that Juana and Philip would inherit Spain. But then, of course, in 1506, Philip dies of plague in um, in Spain, and um, of course, the whole thing has to change. Now, over the next 10 years, 1506 to 1516, there is an immensely complicated, really, crisis in Spain, a political crisis, mm -hmm. crisis over um, inheritance and all the rest of it. If we jump to 1516, um, Ferdinand has, dies at the beginning of that year. Uh, who had been acting as uh, King of Aragon and Regent in Castile. Mm -hmm. And um, the only one left standing, basically, is, is Charles. But his mother has been um, condemned, effectively, as mentally unfit to reign as queen i mean she's still queen legally but she's she's um not you know she's pushed out basically mm -hmm. now this is a long and sordid story um in which both her husband philip and her father Ferdinand were heavily involved in which they um pushed her out of the way um and she was for confined effectively to a palace in northern spain tordesillas near Valladolid in Old Castile, um, where she lived for the rest of her life. And ironically, she lived until 1555, um, long after the, the rest of them, except for her son, Charles. Mm -hmm. 1516, effectively, Charles muscles in. Um, and he pushes aside his younger brother, Ferdinand, who had been brought up, born and bred in Spain, and everyone in Spain thought would be the heir given that their father had died. Um, and um, somehow or other, he also muscles his um, mother away. Uh, when he finally arrives in Spain to take up his inheritance in 1516, he goes to see her. Um, the Castilians, including the Cortes, their parliament, assume that Juana will be queen and he will be regent. Uh, but no, 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 he declares himself king. Uh, he'd already done this in the Netherlands before coming. And um, it, there is a lot of disturbance. There's, in fact, a war, um, civil war again, effectively, in large parts of Spain in 1520, 1521, um, when people rebel against this settlement on behalf of the Queen. Um, so until she dies in 1555, and he abdicates himself only a year later, the, um, the all legal documents in Castile and in the Indies have Juana and Carlos on them, you know, as, as, as the king and queen, effectively. Uh, but that's how, it, this is how the, um, the Habsburgs end up hmm. ruling Spain. I mean, it's, the end is simple, but getting there was not. <laughs> mm -hmm. When Charles I of Castile and Aragon who's the son of Juana of Castile and Philip the first of Castile. Philip, as you mentioned, passes away um, before both Juana and Charles. Was Juana at that point, so when Charles the first of Castile and Aragon um, claims the throne, was 
Juana at that point a titular uh, queen, or did that come after this debacle and controversy, um, and Charles was then king at that point? Now, what what happened was um, Juana became queen of Castile and all its territories as soon as her mother, Isabella, died mm -hmm. in November 1504. And uh, because she was married to Charles's father, Philip, mm -hmm. um, he was he was going to be king. But it was thought in Spain that it would be a constitutional arrangement like the one between Isabella and um, and Ferdinand. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, I say that Philip died, and this led to a lot of regencies and things. But it was at that point that the next in line was Juan and Philip's son, uh, Charles. But, and, um, yeah, sorry. But, but, but uh, Juana is still, as you mentioned, technically, Queen. Yeah, she was in Isabella's will. Um, Juana was designated as what in, in in Spanish it's called Reina Proprietaria, mm -hmm. i.e., she had you know proprietary queen of Spain. Right? And to Isabella, that meant what it had meant to her that all sovereignty is in her hands. Um, and that was clearly what was intended. And I say a lot of, mm. even 20 years later, a lot of Castilian subjects thought that was how it should be. And that I say that Charles should only be, a son should only be regent, but he, he had other ideas. Hmm. Is, is there um, a reasonable uh, claim? Like, is there evidence that shows that the claims against Quahana and her mental stability was fabricated because it seems seems like that that is paramount to her being locked up it sounds like for quite some time and being uh titular in her ability to govern yes that's absolutely right now um it does appear, I mean, this is a controversial subject mm -hmm. and new work is still being done on it. And, um, you know, I've been involved with that to some extent. Um, that um, there is some evidence that she could, even while she was in the Netherlands, first of all, as Philip's husband, a uh, wife, sorry, um, that she was, um, sometimes got rather frantic and hysterical, but that was put down to the fact that he um, was um, basically involved with other women. Mm. And she was a very jealous and loving wife. Um, that's how it seems to have started mm. um, the problem. And I say, nothing stopped her, you know, having uh, children um, who turned out perfectly all right. And um, it was when she got to Spain again, um, and it looked as though she was going to be the next monarch in Castile, that the trouble started. And the um, it's very difficult. I mean, various excellent scholars have, have been very thoroughly through the work on this, and that includes looking at archives, not just in Spain, but in the Netherlands, and, include, and also German ones, because German troops were involved in the... Um, I mean, there comes a point in uh, 1506, I think it was, where mm -hmm. um, 
Juana is actually sort of rounded up by German troops working for her husband um, and put under guard. Um, there's a kind of deal, this we do know, between Ferdinand and, and Philip, that is, you know, that Philip and his um, father-in-law, mm-hmm. agreeing that she's unfit um, to exercise power. They never say she's not queen, but it's all a question of who is going to do the governing. Um, so, yes, I mean, you know, it's very difficult. In the 19th century, a lot of uh, historians and others in Spain, including artists, fancied the idea of the Mad Queen um, and painted all this, for example, dramatically. There are pictures in the Prado Gallery in Madrid you know, showing this. Um, but it, the actual documents are much more ambiguous. It's, 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 it's very difficult to tell. So... Mm. Um, Juana acquired the nickname La Loca, the Mad, mm. um, back in that period, but from her political enemies. Um, and I think that has to be borne in mind. Um, she did occasionally, as it were, flicker into life as a, um, as a ruler, very briefly. When she did, she tended to be very autocratic. Um, but it all got shunted away. I mean, there was a dreadful episode. I mean, there was a lot of what, I mean, today would undoubtedly be regarded as mental cruelty and abusive treatment, which she was subjected to for years um, in Tordesillas, where she lived in this little palace. Mm-hmm. And uh, they pretended to her for years, for example, and her son, Charles, went along with this, that Ferdinand was still alive. You know, they lied to her systematically. That's just one example, but there were plenty of others. Uh, this has gradually been exposed by, you know, a wider range of documents being read from the period. So um, that is, you know, Charles's taking over was really dubious in some respect. Mm-hmm. At least, ironically, I say it was only. Um, a year before he abdicated as King of Spain. Yeah, but, um, so his, it, yeah, his maybe, mother died. Yeah, so and, and there's uh, yes, sir. Oh yes, yeah. So 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 we're at Charles the First, and maybe to punctuate this point, Charles the First is considered a um, he's the he's the son of uh, Habsburg, uh, which would have been Philip. So at is it fair to punctuate this point in time as saying this is the time that the Habsburg family is now ruling what is Spain at that point in time? And then can you um, maybe summarize a bit of Charles' reign, like what, what in more in summary fashion, um, because this episode's more about kind of what came up to the Habsburg um, family, but this still is a crucial point in, point in time. So is this, would you say this, this punctuates the point in time that the Habsburg family is now ruling this, this, uh, this area and, uh, what was, what was it like under Charles reign? Well, Charles, um, he had two big strokes of luck, really. Um, one in 1516, when he managed to inherit effectively Castile and legally Aragon. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, the other one was three years later when he himself 
was elected to the Habsburgs traditional role of Holy Roman Emperor but he was king of the Romans to start with he wasn't actually crowned as emperor until 1530 but so suddenly he's all the Habsburg dreams come true really and of course not only has he got um, the Burgundian inheritance the Habsburg territories in Germany but imperial authority over Austria Bohemia the modern Czech Republic and um, and the Netherlands um, but of course also by um, managing to get hold of the thrones of Castile and Aragon particularly Castile he's managed to get the growing Spanish territories overseas and particularly of course in the Caribbean and on the American mainland um, and of course at the, t- the beginning of his reign people aren't fully aware of how significant that was going to be but nonetheless this of course transforms his role i mean there is no other ruler in europe who has anything like this including the french monarchy which um was very powerful of course in its own territory Mm -hmm. but had not at this stage got the colonial expansion that that came later so um of course so charles because it is very difficult for him to consolidate his authority in spain because of course another thing that happens um is in on october the 31st 1517 a certain then unknown german augustinian friar called martin luther um put up um his 95 theses or at least published them um attacking certain aspects of the way the roman church was operating now in a couple of years charles is emperor it's in his bag to sort all that out as well and for the whole of his reign therefore he needs to be in approximately six places at once at any time um and um i think if you want a quick summary of his reign it was really trying to keep all these different problems in order um and of course that involved the growing problems in the indies as they call it in in in, um, the caribbean and and the american mainland and the um the whole question of the split of the church in europe spain in all this becomes especially the crown of castile which as i said at the beginning was the wealthiest part um also provided the best troops after the experience of the Granada War, they Spanish regiments were very highly regarded. Um, the means of carrying out policies, which often were for other areas altogether. You know, Spanish subjects were quite happy to pay for the defense of their own country against the Turks, um, to keep the Muslims in North Africa quiet, and to control what they could of the Americas. Um, they did not see why they should be sending armies to fight on the border of Czechoslovakia, as it were, in modern terms. Um, But in fact, they did have to. And also, of course, um, the perpetual conflict in Italy, in which the French um, were trying, well, for about 40 years, it was almost continuous warfare in Europe um, between the French and the Habsburgs, each trying to contain the other. So... um, if that gives a picture of constant turmoil and conflict, it's not altogether wrong to uh, to put it in that way. Um, mm-hmm. So when one looks at the sort of grand pictures of Charles V that Titian painted, for example, 
one has to bear in mind that these are rather the sort of propaganda version of, of what Habsburg's power was like. When when Charles died, of course, he, he'd abdicated all his titles, retired to a monastery in um, the middle of Spain, Juste, and um, was really rather a sad, um, sad creature. <laughs> And so he, you, you bring up uh, a very appropriate um, uh, point and, and topics, um, appropriate because it's at the end of his life, if, if his life is the punctuation of the Habsburg family beginning to rule in this area. Um, can you expand on that a bit on the abdication and the splitting of, of the um, territory? So... How was it split? Who is it, um, uh, you know, granted to, bequeathed to? And and I'm, I am curious um, what your opinion is as to why he would have, A, abdicated, which is not, you know, overly common um, with rulers of that time, and why he s- split up the territory and bequeathed it to uh, who he who he did. Well, I think the you're certainly right to say, absolutely right, that um, it was exceedingly rare for anyone to abdicate. In fact, it didn't happen really um, in that way. Um, what seems to have happened is, in um, it all arose out of the conflicts over the Reformation mm. in Central Europe. Um, that it became clear as the years went by, i.e. the 1530s and 40s, that um, really state power wasn't sufficient to run and control the extent of territories and the variety of territories, the geographical distance of them and so on, that the Habsburgs had inherited by the way we've talked about earlier. Um, And that um, so the first time we know that Charles was interested, very interested in um, splitting the empire was 1548. He'd achieved a sort of temporary settlement in the empire in Germany between Catholics and Protestants in which um, the um, Protestant rebellions had been, military rebellions had been put down. Um, So it looked like a good period, but at this point he begins talk to his family about what's going to happen next. Now, it takes them a few years to get this policy agreed, and it's very controversial. But in the end, what happens is that he leaves um, the Spanish territories, including those in the New World, to his son, Philip, Felipe II. And the empire is a, is goes, and that means the Central European Habsburg territories, to the um, to the to um, his brother, Ferdinand, who had been pushed mm. out of the way in the beginning of the 16th century, but had in fact done sterling work um, in helping to keep the uh, Reformation situation under control for many years. Um, and um, the Netherlands uh, go to Philip, not to Ferdinand. And so... Mm they come under effectively Spanish control. And this happens in 1555, 1556. Um, You know, as soon as he's become King of England, 
by marrying Mary Tudor, Mary the First, in 1554. Um, within 18 months, uh, Philip has had to go to Brussels to sort all this out on the continental territories. Um, and as it turns out, you see, Philip inherits, um, I say, the Netherlands and the Spanish territories, all of them. Um, so that's why that comes about. It's, it's, um, and I think, you know, it's really, I think the only explanation one can give is that he, the realization of the overwhelming hmm. um, complexity and extent of the territories and their problems that Habsburgs had inherited was just unworkable in one um, hmm. entity, that um, it just had to be um, split up. And they, the arrangement that follows, of course, works for centuries, actually. Mm. You know, the separate Habsburg Empire and, and the Habsburg Spain, um, they go on um, on their separate path. So he splits the empire between his son and his brother, goes on for centuries. Um, 1548, do you know approximately how old he would have been at that point in time? Well, it's very easy to work out Charles's age because he was born in 1500. Okay. So there you <laughs> it was go. Okay. very healthy. February, February the 24th. And so, yeah. so, yeah, so, I mean, it was oldish by the standards of the 16th century, um, but not that old. Yeah, but in fact, his health was his health was not very good. That's that's where I was kind of going with the first question. So, how old was he when he passed away? Then uh, he was uh, fifty-eight. That okay. was October fifteen fifty-eight. Ten years later. That's it. Yes. But I think the lasting point uh, on that part of this narrative is that what you said. There's a very large, very complex like very large, um, you know, amount of territory to, to, to govern. Um, yeah. And uh, with that comes innumerable complications. He was disillusioned in many ways by the end of his life, I think it's fair to say, hmm. um, that when he first became um, king of Spain, and particularly when he was also Holy Roman Emperor from 1519, effectively, um, he was fed by his imperial civil servants with the idea of world monarchy. Um, that he that somehow this great Christian ruler was going to control the world. Well, it was a lovely idea, but it, events and complications demonstrated that it was impossible. This is an excellent point um, or part, John, where I think we can wrap up the kind of the official part of this conversation this has been a great um, chat I've learned I've learned things on this topic I wanted to for the listeners not just talk about chronology but also talk about the psychology a little bit of what historians um, believe people may have been thinking at that time um, more passionately um, what what has kept you gripped on this this topic for so many uh, decades, uh, the, kind of the medieval, early modern period of um, this area of the world. What? Why are you so passionate about this? 
<laughs> well, there's, I suppose it starts with family history, as these things so often do. That uh, uh, my father was a um, an Oxford hispanist too. You know, he did language and literature rather than history, but um, he had been as a student not fighting in Spain during the Spanish Civil War, 1938. Mm. Uh, he was doing his degree in Oxford from 1936 to nine. Um, and although we didn't go to Spain as a family until the 1960s, um, I was very much involved with it there. Um, my mother was equally passionate about France. And um, so we used to spend a lot of time in both places. Um, so when I was became you know a history student myself, I it became natural to do a lot of European history. We had to do it at school, um, in before I got to Oxford, um, and um, I got fascinated by this period where people said it was either medieval or modern. That's how it all began. Really, that was while I was still at my school in Croydon before mm. I got to Oxford because um, we used to do European history papers and British history papers and um, well a, a I thought they should be all in together and B I thought well I'm getting really interested in this sort of reformation period you know and but what's modern what's medieval what does that stuff actually mean so you know I've got two sides to this I say one is the interest in Spain and things Spanish and the other one is interest in you know how the Christian Church got split um, between between Catholic and Protestant and that actually is what I'm working on at the moment for my current book um, I'm looking again at all this stuff treating the Catholic and Protestant sides as all one as far as my attention goes um, so I'm trying to get deeper into you know where there are similarities and where there are differences than most people mm. do so yeah i suppose that's the best answer i can give you to to that question yeah it's neat uh the current research on the reformation um how are you conscribing the the territory is it glo glo global or is there certain countries that you're looking at um, well, it's it's really um, Western Central Europe plus colonial outposts, <laughs> which I'm sorry to say include the Americas for this purpose. Yeah. You know, but, yeah. yeah. I mean, like, it's impossible to set, for example, the Spanish church. Um, so much that was important happened in those missions in the Americas mm -hmm. and all the rest of it. Mm -hmm. um, that, of course, that's got to be there. And then the period I'm concentrating on is the 16th century, really, um, mm -hmm. rather than later. Um, and it's um, so obviously that will involve, of course, the Pacific as well, when we get to deal, deal with Philippines and so on. Yeah, the 16th century is very formative uh, over over here in, in North America and South America, isn't it? I bet, yeah. yes. Well, I just, uh, <laughs> when I was at, at school, you know, you know, back in that time in the 1960s, there used to be a thing in London called the Royal Tournament, where um, we, um, used to, the, the military used to put on these sort of displays. It was indoors. It was in Earl's Court. I don't know whether you know that in London, which was an exhibition area in West London. And I can remember the, we got to the anniversary of the fall of Quebec to General Wolfe, you see, and they reenacted the scaling of the heights of Abraham 
um, up the walls, this thing, with all the British troops in red coats and the French in white. Yeah. So you had someone doing Wolf, someone doing Montcalm, uh, and all the rest of it. So, you know, I, when I was at school, I was on the whole doing 18th century history mostly. So that, that was the thing. But when I got to Oxford, I suddenly thought, no, I want to do the early period. This is where it all starts, you know, as far as our, our sort of modern Europe and, and, and world really are, are concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's how it came about, really. Yeah. But um, yeah, and of course, the, when you're over, I mean, I have, um, certainly in the United States, um, of course, if you go around with Spanish eyes, you see presence everywhere. And of course, the, the extraordinary thing about, you know, when you go down into Central America, well, Mexico, mm-hmm. southwards, mm-hmm. you know, it's, I, the students I teach here often, they are doing Spanish as their main degree. And they, in the year abroad, they often spend their Spanish bit in Latin America. And they always come back and say, it's amazing mm-hmm. how all this Spanish civilization values seem to dominate everything still, <laughs> even now. You know, there was a very funny thing where uh, we were mentioned briefly in the talk, you know, about the um, Catalans being very sensitive about their language. I mean, I was hugely amused when the Catalan regional government started insisting that everything should be done in Catalan, not Castilian. Mm-hmm. The protests didn't just come from right-wing Castilians from the rest of Spain. It came from the Latin Americans in Barcelona. They said, we can speak Spanish properly. <laughs> Why? Because mm-hmm. of conquistadores. Mm. <laughs> it was extraordinary. Yeah. I remember the first time uh, that I was in Spain, just speaking about the, the dominance of the Spanish language now uh, globally. Uh, I noticed that um, there was actually a lot of infre- infrequency of people in Spain, Spanish, that spoke English. Um, when you compare it to other countries like Germany and Switzerland, where when I traveled through those countries, I found almost everyone I interacted with spoke English. But in in Spain, I I found that not to be the case. And I remember uh, asking someone, why why is that? And and the person, I don't know if the statistics quite right, but but it's probably not too far off. The person I was speaking to a Spanish, she, she said, why 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 do we you know need to learn another language over a billion people in the world speak yes. spanish <laughs> it's quite that's right that was absolutely true <laughs> right so when you frame frame it like that it tells you a lot yeah. about the spanish people it does thank it you for really. joining me today for this chat john it's been a pleasure So again, everybody, the book that I cited that Dr. Edwards wrote at the start of the episode, The Spain of the Catholic Monarchs, 1474 to 1520. I'll drop a link to it in the show notes on the Ithacabound.com's associated subpage to this episode. And I'm sure Dr. Edwards also has another book that uh, he's going to be publishing at some point in the reasonable future as well on the Reformation. So uh, look out for that as well. John and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.